0: Well, this morning we're continuing our study on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Today we're looking at verses 13 to 16 and the call to be the salt and the light. Pray with me one more time and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, thank you for, um, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for all that we have in you. Thank you that you've shown us the light that you've been this city set on a hill. You've been this lamp that has shown us the way. Lord, thank you for the the good news that you've communicated to us. Lord, we're here not because of our own good works. We're here not, not because we're morally superior than anyone else. We're not Pharisees. We're sinners who've been saved by grace. That's why we're here. So Lord, we want to worship you because of that. We also want to, we want to know you better. We want to know the ways that we're to live so that not only we can be faithful to you, it's our duty, but also because it's our delight to know you and walk with you and commune with you. So Lord, as we push into this aspect of discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be the salt and be the light, may, may we do this compassionately and convictionally Lord, give us the strength and the love to be the salt and be the light. Lord, I pray to that end that your spirit would come and fill this room, that you would give us eyes to see in areas where maybe we're blinded, that you would give us faith in areas where we lack and doubt, that you would give us joy in areas that we don't have it. Lord, we need you. We need you to move and minister right now. So we invite your spirit to come. Finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, how should we be in the world but not of the world? I know that's kind of a Christian cliche, but but I actually think it's very, very helpful because I, I need that question because I feel a real monastic tension. I don't know if you feel that. When years ago, I was on a mission trip as a college student in Eastern Europe, and we had been doing work all week, and then we went and, and saw this monastery up in the mountains, and, and it was beautiful. I mean, it looked like sound of music or something. It was up in the mountains, and it was in this little uh, valley, and we just stopped, and we prayed, and we had a time of worship. We just kind of had a, a time of solitude with the Lord, walking around the grounds there. And, and uh, at the end of it, I told the missionary, I said, man, what a... What an amazing place and what an amazing life to have lived up here. And that guy turned on me pretty quick. (laughs) He goes, you know, in those years that they were up here, there was all sorts of war and famine and strife at the bottom of the mountain where real people were and they needed the gospel. And these guys were up here not ministering to real people. It hit a real chord for someone who had given their life to being a missionary. That's always stuck to me because I've had this monastic draw and this monastic tension. And so this question of how do I be in the world and not of the world, that actually pushes into not just some head stuff for me, but also some heart stuff for me. You see, we're called to be distinct from the world. And in some ways, people think, okay, well, that means we're to, to build uh, walls against the world. But in reality, we're supposed to build bridges to the world. We're supposed to be distinct from the world, but we're also to, be, to, to, to permeate the world. What issues should we speak into? What issues should we not speak into? When we decide to speak into an issue, how should we speak into it? How should we be in the world and of the world? The answer to that question is Jesus' uh, teaching here. To be the salt and be the light. He wanted his disciples to know that to be a faithful disciple, a faithful follower of Christ, you couldn't run off to the monastery. You needed to be in the world, but not of the world. You needed to engage the world as the salt and as the light, as this preservative salt, preserving against the moral decay of the world. As the light, as this illuminating light, shining the light of truth in a darkened world. You're the solution that Jesus is providing. You are the salt and you are the light. Matthew 5, 13 to 16 is important because it's difficult for us as disciples to be the salt and the light, right? Like we're, we're stepping into a difficult passage. Not because it's difficult to understand, but because it's difficult to live. You see, it's difficult for a couple of reasons. First off, theoretically, like with your mind, you might even reject some of these categories. Like like some of the things that the Bible says about moral decay, spiritual decay in the world, you might not think there is even such a thing. Many in our world don't even believe in, in some of those categories. In fact, since the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment has said, you know, the real problems with the world are they're material, they're on the outside, and the solution the problem is really ignorance, and the solution is education. And if we could just educate people more, then we wouldn't have these problems. Now, clearly at some level that that's true. But we also know that there's all sorts of educational efforts that end up not bringing the solution that they intend, uh, intend to bring. Also, this call to be salt and light is difficult simply because we lack love for the world. Listen, th- this is my struggle uh, being salt in, in the light, I, I get it conceptually. I don't have some sort of built-out philosophy against the ideas of moral decay or, or a, di- a darkened world. My, my objections really have to do with my heart. Like, like I don't have a love for other people uh, to the degree that I'm supposed to. You see, I can love my family to the degree that I really give little energy to the world around me. I, I can struggle to love people who are different than me or, or who look down on me in some way. I can, uh, I can struggle with the sin of exclusive love. Let me say it this way. I can struggle with the sin of snobby love. Like if you're like me and I like you, man, I love you. But if you're different than me, maybe have trouble connecting with you, you know, some people are just harder to love, right? Like I can have lack of love in those moments. But in the face of those difficulties, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us two metaphors for the solution, light and salt. And a metaphor is a type of an analogy. An analogy, if you're looking for a definition, it's a where there's a transfer of meaning from a source object to a target object. And the point of a metaphor is to make a connection between these two objects in order to help us understand. So metaphors and analogies are all about helping us understand. Now, sometimes, though, with metaphors, the, the meaning, the understanding is not apparent. So say, for example, you say, well, uh, what he was saying to me, man, that was like fingernails on a chalkboard. Well, okay, wait a second. Does that mean that, like, he spoke with a squeaky voice? Does that mean that the content of what he said gave you that feeling? Sometimes the, the meaning is, is not apparent and that's kind of similar to what's going on here. So, so we have to do some work to really understand what Jesus is saying. Now, now before we look at, at verses 13 to 16, I want you to look back up at verses 11 and 12 because there's kind of a bridge from the Beatitudes to this section of verses 11 and 12. So Matthew 5, 11 and 12, it talks about how disciples are persecuted. Verse 11 says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Like I said, this verse 11 and 12, we looked at it briefly last week, but it kind of serves as a transition from the Beatitudes then to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And the clear point that he's trying to make here is I've been persecuted, and if you're a follower of me, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're also going to be persecuted. Then he's going to start talking about being the salt and the light. Now, the reason why that point is important is is because the things that he's calling you to, the world is not going to like, throw a parade for you when you do it. Like when you step into the moral decay of the world and try to bring uh, preservation and perseverance in those moments, they're not going to throw a parade for you on that. In fact, they're going to kick back on you in that. Like when you step in trying to bring truth to darkness, those who are in the darkness many times are not going to be thankful for it. It's going to be like throwing a life preserver to a man who's drowning and then he cusses at you the whole time for it. That that is how Jesus was treated and many times that's how we're treated. But finally, in understanding these difficult realities, I don't want you to lose hope in that moment. Notice that he says in verse 12 that when that happens to you, rejoice. Rejoice because when that happens to you, you're actually gaining reward in heaven. So he's trying to be clear. Listen, be the salt, be the light. You might be persecuted for it, but when you're persecuted for it, don't panic. Don't think that something's wrong. Actually rejoice because you're gaining something in eternity. Okay, verse 13, be the salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This first metaphor is that disciples, followers of Christ, are to be like salt. So if you think about it, though, this is kind of a surprising turn in the sermon for Jesus, right? Like if you look back at those Beatitudes, they're beautiful statements They're very paradoxical statements. They're very countercultural. The Beatitudes are all this call. If you're going to be a disciple, you need to live as a citizen for the kingdom that is to come. So you're going to live different from the world. You're going to be distinct from the world. You're going to look different. Now, embedded in that for me is, okay, well, then that means I'm supposed to maybe separate or step away from the world. Difference means that I'm supposed to be separate from the world. And then he starts talking about salt and light here. So it's this kind of surprising turn that Christians are indeed supposed to be different, but we're also to permeate all of society. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt on, okay, what does he mean by salt here? And there's kind of a few different ways to interpret it. The first one is, is that this is about preservation, that there's a moral decay happening and salt is about preservation. Also, uh, it's been interpreted. This has to do with taste. Like there's a, there's a lack of flavor. There's a sourness, and we're and we're to sweeten something. The third uh, interpretation is is it's some sort of combination of both. That's probably where I land. S- certainly, it's the first about preservation. That, that salt in the ancient world was used primarily to to preserve uh, meat. So when you don't have refrigerators, they use salt to help preserve decaying meat. But also there's an aspect, and we'll look at a verse uh, here in a moment, where it talks about that salt is actually used to to flavor something. So that also happened in, in the ancient world. So I take some sort of middle position maybe that says, listen, as things morally decay, we're supposed to preserve the world, but we're also to sweeten it where it has become sour. So I think that's the point that Jesus is getting at, is that disciples are to sweeten what is sour in the world. Now, this begins with understanding. It begins with understanding the moral decay that's around us and then how that moral decay affects people. So if you want to be the the salt, this begins in your head of just understanding certain things, understanding the spiritual aspects of the problems that we face. Any any problem that we face, there's a, a spiritual foundation to it. And it's also then to understand, okay, what are the spiritual gospel solutions to that problem? No matter what problem it is, what are the spiritual aspects to it? Now, now those aren't the only aspects to a solution. But as Christians, we're to understand the spiritual problems and then the spiritual solutions. Because if we don't, in essence on many of these problems, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a dying man. And many times we do that with the problems in our world. Rather, Jesus is calling you to be the salt to be the solution, to be the the preservative in what is decaying, to to be the sweetness in what is sour, to understand the problems, understand the gospel solutions, and then you yourself be that sweetener to what is sour, to make things better. Now, I think it's helpful to to think about how to be the salt, maybe in, in, in different spheres of influence in your life. Like we all have different relationships but I think if you want to be the the sweetener to what is sour if you want to be the salt to our world it really begins with your own heart but then it expands out to uh, your family and your closest friends then it gets to your community and and really uh, the world around you but everything that Jesus talks about always begins with the heart he always cuts to the heart over and over again and this passage uh, is this too so if you want to be the salt that begins with examining your own heart what in your heart is keeping you from being the salt? Is it, is it a lack of love? Is it a, a spiritual apathy that you have towards others? But also, are you being the salt to the ones that you're closest to? Like we, we as, uh, I think as Americans, have a, a live and let live mentality. And in some ways, that's certainly true. But also, there's a real unlovingness sometimes of, of living and let living. Like if your kids are going down a, a dark path, a morally decaying path. It's an unloving thing to just let them go down that path. He's calling you to be the salt in that moment. Further, the disciples of Jesus, we're to play this role in our immediate community. So we're, we're to look around and say, okay, what, what are the morally uh, decaying aspects of our community? Are, are, are people hungry in our community? If they are, let's start a Tuesday night drive through food bank. Our people, our children and teenagers, are they anxious and depressed in our community? Okay, well, then, then how do we step into that? And listen, that's what our hands and feet projects are all about. It's giving you opportunities to step in and be that salt. And let me say one thing about our hands and feet projects. Those are not designed for like the green berets, okay? Those aren't designed for just like the select few that this is just kind of their thing, it's designed really for everybody. Everybody is to step in and be the salt to our community. But Listen, those categories are easier for me. But this final category of, of being the sweetener in our larger culture, that, that's a harder thing for me. But this call includes that. Jesus was a, was a sweetener. He was the salt in the, in the larger culture around him. And he's just in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. If you remember the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Amos, all these crazy prophets and wild-eyed illustrations that they preach. If you notice, they're good at rebuking the injustice within Israel, within the people of God, believers of God. They're quick to rebuke them for their sin. But also, if you read the prophets, they rebuke everybody around Israel too. Like if the Moabites are sacrificing their children, they rebuke them for that. If the Edomites are wicked in some way, they rebuke them for that. My point is is that many times I think Christians say, well, this guy's struggling with sin, but he's not a believer, so just live and let live. I don't really have any grounds to speak into that. Jesus and the prophets before him were saying something very different. Jesus spoke into those moments. So any uh, social ill you see going on, Christians have an obligation and a call to speak into those things. Even if you're speaking to people who are not believers. Pick anything you want. Pick pick racism. Our country has been haunted with racism uh, probably its its whole way through. And so if you have a a friend who's maybe making a racist joke, but he's not a Christian, you, you can't take the position, well, he's not a Christian, so I shouldn't speak into that. Jesus is saying something different. He's saying, listen, be the salt in that moment. Talk about the Imago day that we're all creating the image of God. We're all equal in worth and dignity. Speak into those moments. For example, when I was younger, uh, I heard from a lot of my African-American friends, guys, who would, uh, they, they would want to date a white girl. And many times, guys would come back and say, you know, we, we tried to date, but, but her dad said that uh, he doesn't let his daughter date black guys. Did you ever hear that growing up? You know, I saw for a lot of my friends that that did something really toxic in their hearts. Can you imagine being that young man, hearing something like that? Like those guys struggled with feeling less than in some ways. I heard that from multiple friends feeling that way. Many of those guys, they struggled with, and I totally get this, like real anger towards that dad. And I heard from a lot of those guys that they began to be like real suspicious of all white people. Like, do all white people think this about me? Think that I'm not good enough to date their daughter? Like, like I had real friends struggle with anger and, and struggle with being suspicious and, and cynical towards different people. Listen, it's in those moments that we're to be the salt. We're to speak up in those moments. We're to talk about the Imago Day. When our friend is suffering from something like that, we're to weep with those who weep. We're we're to help them capture their thoughts, help them forgive. We're to be the salt in those moments. And hear me, if we don't, Jesus says in this opening verse that we will become useless to the world. We'll become useless if we don't. If you're not the salt, you're going to become useless. The church is... Highest highs and our lowest lows are on this point right here. Like on this issue of racism. These are our highest highs and our lowest lows. And we've got to understand both of them if if we want to be effective at ministering to our world. Our highest highs. Friend, we need to speak with clarity and with understanding that the British and the American abolitionist movements they were distinctively Christian movements. Those people, in the name of Scripture, using Scripture, using ideas like the Imago Day, were advocating the end of slavery. If you're an African American, hear that and know that. Also know that thousands of white boys took up arms and died in the Union Army in order to end slavery in this country. Also know that the civil rights movement in this country was led by a Baptist preacher. It was distinctively Christian in that way. And it was guided by those principles. There's a lot on this issue that Christians can go back to historically and see great highs in our story. But that's not the full story, right? Like also in that story, there were also thousands of white boys, many of my ancestors, who took up arms in the Confederate Army to preserve slavery in this country. And that's something we need to talk about. Our own denomination, this is how our denomination was started. The Northern Baptists rebuked uh, Baptist pastors in the South and deacons in the South for owning slaves. And they did not want uh, uh, pastors and deacons of Baptist churches in the South to be able to own slaves. So, you know what the, the churches in the South did? They formed their own denomination so that their pastors and deacons can own slaves. That's our denomination. So if you're an African-American person, it's understandable that you might be suspicious of our denomination. It's a low. It's a low that we still have to understand and deal with today. You remember the letter from a Birmingham jail? Such Such a powerful and important letter. It's written to pastors, by the way. Martin Luther King talks about his kids seeing a commercial on TV about the about a new amusement park that had opened. It was called Funtown. And they were all excited. I want to go to Funtown. Dad, can we go to Funtown? He then had to tell them, well, they don't, they don't let black kids into Funtown. This is in the 1960s, friends. So listen, those, those historical realities, they still linger. But, but what does that mean for this verse? Be the salt. Friends, if we're not the salt in those moments, Jesus is saying we're useless. Let me give you one final example on the Denton Square, we, we used to have this, this arch on the square. And, and it was there, uh, it was put up by a group called the Daughters of the Confederacy. It was to memorialize their fathers and uncles who fought in the Confederacy. They had a Confederate soldier on top. It was an arch and you would walk under it, you know, to get up to the square. But on that arch, there were two water fountains. You know why there were two? One for the white kids, one for the black kids. Now, Imagine if you're a five-year-old black girl living in our community, walking by that every day. Doesn't that say something about how people around you view you? Now now imagine white people who maybe claim to be Christ and put that up, If they went to her and tried to share the gospel with her, yet they didn't want to drink from the same water fountain from her. Isn't there a moral disconnect there? Doesn't she have trouble hearing the gospel in that moment? Are you with me on... How if we don't be the salt, we're going to be rendered useless. If we're not the salt, we're going to be useless. Now, listen, I want to be clear. I don't always know the answers to all our problems. And I think we also need to graciously disagree on the best solutions. But I do know that Jesus said, we are to be the salt. Otherwise, we're going to be useless. But also be the light. Verse 14 says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus uses two images to talk about the light. This city set on a hill. And he also talks about about being a lamp. A city set on a hill is is this idea that that there's something high and lifted up that that is visible to all around it. To those who are down at the bottom in the dark, they can look up and see it. But, But here's the key to this image. It's different, it's distinct, and it shines light on everything, and you can see it, but it's meant to be something to where the people in the dark, those at the bottom of the mountain, they look up and desire it. So being the city set on a hill, it's about being distinct, but being distinct in a way to where those in the darkness desire what you have. Christians, you're to shine the light but you're to shine the light in a better way, in the sense of, of helping people desire something better. You're to be different, but in a way that causes people to desire what you have. Let me pick a second issue. We're, we're experiencing a sexual revolution in our society that is probably for many, it is for me, that is just spinning. It's, it's happening very fast, and I'm having trouble even keeping up with the language of it all. But, but let me be clear on what the Bible says on some things. Let, let me just be plain and be utterly clear on some things. Number one, the Bible is clear that sex is limited to marriage. Number two, the Bible is really clear that marriage is to be limited to one man and one woman. The Bible is also really clear that there's really, kind of like biology teaches us, that there's really only two genders. Listen, there are certainly culturally constructed things that are connected to our view of gender. Some of them are biblical, some of them are not. And we have to do the work to navigate those things. So if you're a man and you don't want to go be a cowboy or work on an offshore drilling rig, that's okay that you can still be a man and not do those things. If you're a woman and I can't think of something ridiculous Uh, right now in my head that you think is like a ridiculous vision of a woman and you don't want to be that. That's okay. We're not saying otherwise. But what we are saying is that gender is binary. It's not fluid. It's not relative. And also your gender, if you're a man or if you're a woman, that's really not up to you. It's up to God. God has sovereignly decided to make you a man or to make you a woman. And he thinks it's good if you are. No matter if you're a man or a woman. If you're a man, praise God. God thinks that that's good. If you're a woman, praise God. God thinks that that is good and that is part of God's sovereign good grace for you. Being the light as a city set on a hill, it means that we we teach and we live those truths, but we do it in ways that are refreshing and enlightening to those who disagree with us. Man, what I mean is, is, is don't be some sort of stereotype that some people think that men are. D- don't be this oppressive, brutish person. Don't, don't, don't live that stereotypical life that some people think men are. Ladies, you're to do the work of understanding biblical femininity and live it in this beautiful, distinct way from the world around you. May your girlfriends just watch your life and say, wait, wait a second, there's something different there. Why, why do you treat your husband that way? Why do you talk to people that way? Why do you make these choices? Married couples, model marriage that sacrificially loves and respects your spouse. Be quick to forgive. Help your kids look at your marriage and desire to be married themselves. Let me speak into this too. If, if you have same-sex attraction, you're to understand that. And, and I want you to hear you're not the only one. You're not the only one in this church who is. If you have same-sex attraction, understand that. Put it in the right biblical categories. Learn how to walk faithfully with the Lord with that. And I also want you to know, this is a safe place for that. This is not a church where we don't want anybody who has same-sex attraction to come here. We, we want you here. We want you to be ministered to by the gospel. We, we want to love you and walk with you. You don't have some sort of scarlet letter on you. But if you're there, it's a call to walk with the Lord with that same-sex attraction. Ethics is the new apologetics. That's why we have to step into all these issues. Listen, people's objections to the gospel, they don't have anything to do with dinosaurs and age of the earth anymore. They have to do with these ethical issues. People think this is right. But the Bible says something different, and so they reject the gospel as a result of it. So we have to do the work to understand these issues. It takes courage to be distinct, friends. You're being called to be the salt, be the light, which means you are to be different. And it takes courage to be distinct. But your distinction is also what's beautiful about this. Be the light by living faithfully in a way that inspires people to Jesus. Let's look at our last two verses. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, the second image of light it's using this image of, of a lamp, and a, and a lamp would illuminate the entire house. The, the ancient lamps were, were something that they would carry in their hands, and it would be like, like, a, like a cup, and it would, it would have an oil in it, and then a wick with it, and you would light it, and you could walk around the house with it, but you could set it on a stand, and it, it would illuminate the entire room. But what Jesus is saying is that his disciples are to help people see. We, we have a role in society to help people see the truth. And friends, this is very difficult for a series of reasons. It's very difficult because sometimes the truth is this third way. Sometimes the truth is not what this political position is or what this political position is, but it's this third way. Sometimes that's what the truth is. But I I want to be abundantly clear on something as well. Sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes this political position is this, this political position is this, and this political position is the more biblically faithful position. Sometimes the third way is not what is truth, and that takes a lot of work to understand it. That takes a lot of work to determine, okay, what is truth? How am I supposed to shine the light? What is truth? Again, Jesus is saying that like a lamp, his disciples were to help people see. In other words, we we can't cloister away into... Monasteries. We have to fight the good fight. But, but I want to be clear here that our fight is very different than the world around us. Our fight is not about power and taking political control and forcing people to believe something that they really don't. Listen, power alienates people. Power leads to oppression. Power uh, uh, leads to division. Our fight, if you will, is to persuade you see, persuasion builds community. Persuasion draws people together. We're not about just trying to get people to do certain behaviors or not do certain behaviors. We're, we're fighting for hearts and minds, if you will. So, for example, the, the world has uh, tried to make the case that, that pro-life Christians are racist and they don't care about the whole woman. That's just not true. To be utterly frank, that, that's, that's a lie, okay? That's a lie meant to manipulate you. The history is of the abortion movement is it's distinctively racist. Okay? The, the largest abortion clinic in this state is, is in a, a predominantly black neighborhood in Houston, right next to one of the largest uh, African-American universities in this state. And it is there for a reason. Okay, th- th- That is part of the history of the abortionist movement. Also, it's just simply not true that pro-life people... Don't care about the whole woman. Every crisis pregnancy center that I know of and have ever worked with have intentional ministries for ladies who make a choice to abort their child and then they continue to minister to them. Every crisis pregnancy center that I know provides classes and resources and all sorts of things to to all the woman's needs. Listen, as a Christian, to be the light. We're to refute those falsehoods. But again, we're to do it not through power, but through persuasion. We're to do it through conversations and presenting facts and telling the truth and debating and sharing the history. We're in the business of not just changing behaviors, but changing hearts and minds. Finally, we need to, be, we need to persuade in order to give glory to God. God is glorified in this. I don't want to step into any of these issues, to be utterly frank with you. But as we do this, and we do it the right way from the right heart, God is glorified in it. That's the point of it. It's not to glorify ourselves, it's to glorify him. So when we do the good works of living distinctively, serving needs, persuading others uh, to God, God is made great in the eyes of others. So blessing is meant to lead to worship. Well, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, it teaches us that that if we want to be one of Jesus' disciples, we want to be a follower of Christ, we can't run away to the monastery. We need to be in the world. And further, it teaches us how to be in the world. We're we're to be the salt and the light. We're to, we're to understand conceptually that. Discipleship is about being salt and it's about being light. It's, it's rejecting certain worldviews and accepting others. It's trying to understand issues. It's trying to present, uh, prevent moral decay. It's trying to shine the light in, in moral darkness. And we're to do this not only in our own hearts and our own families and our own communities and in our country at large. We're to, we're to be this preservation uh, element in our culture. We're to be this illuminating fact, uh, factor in our culture. We have to ask, how is the gospel sweet to these sour problems? And finally, we're to understand that you as an individual, us as a church, we're to be the salt and we're to be the light. We're the solution. But before faithfulness can move from understanding to action, it's got to run through our hearts. This has got to run through our hearts first. Before you can do any of this, you maybe need to repent of some lack of love in your heart. Um, Easter is, is kind of an interesting moment in the, in the life of a pastor. It's kind of our Super Bowl, okay? We spend weeks planning for this thing, and we talk about all the details, and we get excited. And last week was awesome. And it was about Thursday before I felt normal this past week, okay? I was just zonked and tired all week, which meant I was just, I was just burdened this week. I just felt the weight of trying to be salt and light. I had a spiritual apathy this week and and a lack of love this week, and it was amazing to me that this was the passage that I was supposed to to bring this week. Listen, if you struggle there, you you need to push into some of those heart issues. But, But push into it because it's worth it. You see, if you've done the head work and the heart work, I just want to challenge you to jump on in because the water is fine. Jump on into this life because even though it's burdensome at times, you are created for it. Ephesians 2.11 says that you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is why he created you. This is why he put you in this community, this family, with these friends in this church right now is for those good works. And further, joy is found there. There's more joy experienced on Tuesday night at that drive through food pantry than all the mansions in the DFW Metroplex. That's where joy is found. Living outside of yourself for other people. Listen, that's a higher high than anything this world has to offer. But before we close, let me give you one little, maybe bit of advice. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. There's this evidence of salt being a seasoning. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see, we're... we're uh, only able to persuade people when our speech is seasoned with salt. You see, you can't persuade if you haven't built rapport with anyone. You're to persuade, but that means you need to be fair and honest about someone else's positions. You need to represent it well. In order to persuade people, you need to be honest about areas where we, dis, where we agree. Everything doesn't need to be these straw men and battles on everything. You see, win the person, not just the argument. And finally, I... Like I said, I, I find this difficult. I find this difficult because in reality, I think there's a, there can be a snobbishness to my love. I, I can pick and choose who I want to love. Have you ever struggled to love enough to be salt against the decay? Are you struggling today to care enough to bring light to the darkness? Friend, if you're there, I'll go back to Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. If you're there today, I encourage you to go back to that grace that saved you. You see, that same grace that converted you is that same grace that can carry you day by day even when you lack love for the people you're supposed to. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, He converted you by His grace and He promises to carry you day by day by His grace even when you lack love. I'll close with this. When I... um, served as an outreach pastor in Houston. I became friends with just a, a wonderful lady who ran a crisis pregnancy center. Uh, she was always full of life. She, she personally was a, was a great inspiration to me. Um, I told you about that big Planned Parenthood center targeting that college and, and that downtown neighborhood. But Miss um, Cynthia, she, she believed in that story of David and Goliath. <laughs> and so she was facing a Goliath, but, but, but she wasn't scared of that. And so she opened her center right in the middle of that. So, so when Planned Parenthood uh, started running commercials on, on the local rap station, she started running better commercials on that same rap station. Uh, she was so creative. <laughs> when, when that Planned Parenthood started doing events on, on that campus, she started doing events on that campus. She was so courageous. But uh, she wasn't the stereotype that some people would maybe think of someone like that. She was always smiling. She was always hugging She was always loving people. And she did it in the face of real vilification. Last January, um, Sylvia's an African-American woman, and uh, her center was vandalized. And, And I mean, just awful racist things were said of her and of that center. And she just rubbed some salt on it. She kept shining the light. She kept smiling. She kept persuading. She kept loving. I'm sorry that Jesus doesn't give you the freedom to run off to the monastery. He just doesn't. He's calling you to be the salt, to be the light. He's calling you to uh, preserve a morally decaying world. He's calling you to illuminate a darkened world. What is decaying around you? What is darkness? What is the darkness around you? Whatever it is, shine your little light. Let's pray. Father God, this is in many ways such a, a simple and direct passage. Kind of easy to understand. It's amazing how hard of a passage this is. This is not our heart. Our heart, even as people who've been blessed, who've been given great grace, our heart is not to be the salt and the light. Because vilification comes from it. Every society and every age has areas that bump up against the gospel and your word. We have them in our society. May people look back at us the ways that we look back at William Wilberforce and John Newton and saw how courageously they worked to end slavery. May they look back at us in those same ways. May we be faithful in our day with the struggles that are here. May we be the light. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.